Greetings, everyone. You're tuned in to Election Connection with me, your host, Ruth Newman. Now, today's show features Dr. Ted Smith, director of the Center for Healthy Air, Water, and Soil at the University of Louisville's Envirome Institute. And what you are about to hear is his talk given February 20th, 2023, at the Louisville League of Women Voters on his findings from monitoring Louisville's wastewater for COVID viruses and other pathogens. So here is Dr. Ted Smith. Well, good evening, everyone. and Thank you so much um, for inviting me back. The Envirome Institute at the University of Louisville is a relatively young research institute. It was formed about five years ago. It is actually a combination of a bunch of research centers that already had existed, and we brought them together under one umbrella. So there's 110 of us, uh, sort of the largest research organization at the University of Louisville by a lot. Uh, we're primarily funded by the National Institutes of Health, and we primarily focus on cardiovascular disease. And so this jaunt into infectious disease is a complete departure of what we all did for a living for a couple of years. Um, a little bit about the scope of what we do, and again, we're not infectious disease people, so everything I'm telling you about infectious disease, I'm either making up or I'm repeating what somebody told me, and I'm just telling you. But our, um, our focus, as I mentioned, is really in cardiovascular disease, so really the chronic health diseases that affect most of the developed world. And we have five different centers that approach that from uh, different directions. Some of them are very basic science um, centers that do small animal research, focus on understanding metabolism uh, and mechanisms of uh, vascular damage and repair. And it goes all the way up to what we think of as more societal or community things. Things like pollution are central to the work we do, um, understanding how that uh, interacts with the acceleration or prevention of heart disease. And many of us, depends on when you grew up, we're more or less told to believe that whatever your genes said is what would be happening to you. And um, it's truly unfortunate, it's a major disservice. I think we all understand that we're a product of our genes and our environment. And um, I'm just here to tell you we know a lot more about our genes than we know about our environment. And um, I would argue the next century, all the headroom in figuring out how to live disease-free will not come from genomics, it will come from understanding the environment that we're in. And so we're one of the few places in the country that actually is fully committed to an agenda to understand the interaction between the environment and genes and uh, our overall uh, physiology. We break down the environment into the natural environment, um, so that's the primordial environment. We as organisms uh, share with all the other living organisms um, and have an unbelievable fundamental dependency on, right? So the sun has to rise and set, we have to have gravity. Uh, you know, we need to have a certain amount of oxygen in the atmosphere. All those things that you know we require to live, um, we tend to forget about in modern society. But uh, when we screw it up, right, when we pollute it, uh, when we uh, extract too much of something that we didn't realize we needed or killed off something that we didn't realize we needed, we, we all do pay the price when that happened because our natural resources are critical. Moving into the next layer is our social environment. And so we're one of the few species on the planet that will modify the natural environment. Really, it's not the norm. The norm is just to 
survive where you are. But we're one of those clever species, and we just start, you know, chopping down the trees and building things. And so we modify the natural environment, and then we create these things that we can think of then as social environments because we socially constructed them. Most of our existence every day, we really think about the social environment because that's we're a very social species. And a lot of the concerns around health and disease are probably rooted in how we live socially, right? That, that includes things like what we choose to eat and grow, uh, who we choose to affiliate with, our socioeconomics, all those kinds of things. Um, we know are deeply connected to human lifespan and, and how long and how well we will live. But then you can get down to what we can think of as the personal environment. So if you've ever read any of the twin studies, when you have biological twins, they don't end up dying on the same day and they don't end up dying of the same thing. And so um, that is one point of proof that your genes aren't everything, right? That they're our experiences, even in identical twins raised in the same house, they're going to have their own individual environment that they are experiencing, right? Decisions and choices they make, they will make individually. Though they may look the same, maybe they dress the same, they aren't having the same experience. And so, um, you know, we look at the personal environment as a, probably the most complicated thing to understand because it is individual to each and every one of us. Okay, that's the pitch for the environment. So now you know where we come from. Sometimes when we look around a city, we're aghast when we say, well, gosh, there's a 12-year life expectancy difference between this zip code and that zip code in Jefferson County. That's terrible, right? And then after you're done saying that's terrible, you really have to then ask yourself, well, what do we do next, right? So we think a 12-year life expectancy difference is ridiculous and unconscionable. What are we going to do about that? Well, we're going to have to look at the environmental circumstances of those two places, and we're going to have to figure out what needs to be done to improve life expectancy in one of those places, right? So the Air Louisville project um, was a, a project that's kind of like that. So if you uh, grew up in Louisville, you know that this is one of the worst places to live in the country if you have allergies or any kind of breathing disorder. Always in the top five worst places to live in the United States anytime somebody makes a list. And, you know, when I started working for the mayor and we're talking these big companies, how do you relocate people to want to live in Louisville and all this, many of them figured out quickly, maybe they had a spouse, maybe they had children, maybe they themselves had allergies, had COPD, had some respiratory issue. They knew that this was going to be a hard place to live and that they were going to require extra medications to live here. And so we did this landmark project where we had people carry around um, asthma inhalers. So you, if you're asthmatic, you might have a regular maintenance product to take every day, and then you might have something you need for emergencies. And we have these things equipped with a little radio transponder, and every time you had an exacerbation and needed your emergency product, it would take a snapshot of what time it was and where you were in Jefferson County. And then we created that beautiful heat map over there, and we had a picture of 1,400 people having many exacerbations over the course of 18 months. And that heat map was the beginning of really starting to understand if you wanted to reduce the burden of asthma, you wouldn't look at the entire county, you wouldn't look at the entire Ohio River Valley, you would look at these places. You would say, what's going on in those places? And that study, the punchline was microclimates of air pollution in those places. It had nothing to do with indoor circumstances, with the age of the housing stock, with what kind of health insurance you had. It had everything to do with whether it was an ozone day, whether there was fine particulate matter in the air, generally what month it was. So these ozone days tended to be in the summer, so hotter months were much more problematic. And in those particular places that are red. And so it wasn't where you lived, it was where you spent your time. And so 
for me personally, that was a really transformative experience because then you could look around and you could say, if I want to improve health, I have to look at places. We've done work in the cardiovascular system looking at living near roadways and what that does to accelerate heart disease and the, actually the damage to the, the cardiovascular system itself. And you know, here's a participant enrollment map, so all the little dots are where we enroll people, and you can obviously see where the roadways are. And then we went and figured out by looking at blood samples from those individuals who had the most compromised vascular system. And guess what? It was people that lived within 50 meters of one of our busiest roadways. And that study's been replicated a couple of times now in other places. So now we know living near air pollution is a really big problem for your vascular system. And so then we have to think about what we might want to do about that, either move or do something to remediate the air pollution, right? So we did those kind of environmental projects and we're very comfortable thinking about these places and how factors will vary across places. Well, then COVID hits and we knew early in the pandemic that it was difficult to figure out who was infected, right? We didn't have enough tests and there were all sorts of problems with um, really getting a handle on where the infections were. And we knew that it was absolutely lethal for many people early in the, in the pandemic. And so we were flying blind is a, is a nice way to put it for a long time, maybe seven months of really not having any kind of good understanding of how many people were actually infected, mostly because of these testing complexities, right? Were there tests available? Where could you get a test? And many people not getting tested and, you know, people not being symptomatic. And so it, it was a particularly insidious pathogen. And it was really difficult from a public health standpoint to understand whether we were winning or losing at any particular time. Well, somebody figured out that when, when we're infected with COVID, we were shedding the virus through the endothelial linings in our GI tract and it was leaving with our feces into the sewer system. And that then would give us an opportunity to test everybody, right? Mm -hmm. If you use the facilities, you are taking a test. <laughs> and you know, just keep using the facilities, you keep getting tested, right? Um, and so really a kind of genius. Now people have been looking in sewage for other kinds of health issues. And, and in the United States, primarily it was for looking at opiates. And so, you know, somebody had the great idea that we could go chasing illicit opiate use by looking at sewage. That's a loaded topic. I will tell you, we have a policy that we don't do that, mostly because of the stigmatization of communities. That, that I mean, if you, you have to have an answer on the other side of when you're asking a question, right? Like, what will you do with the answer? What will happen next? And what will happen next with opiates is, not that we'll send drug treatment or anything like that. We'll be sending law enforcement. Yeah. And so, you know, which is it's just one of those things that we'll just decide that's just not something we do. Now, COVID was killing people. And so um, getting a handle on COVID is a, is a good use case. The other large use case that predates all this was polio surveillance. So uh, my colleague, Rochelle, who's in Malawi, her work was largely in polio and Ebola and all of these very terrible diseases, um, tropical diseases that, um, that were really difficult with the healthcare infrastructure. Those countries had very difficult to know what was going on there too, just because of the healthcare infrastructure, right? And they were surveilling pit latrines and open you know, drainage ditches. And that's actually how we ultimately eradicated polio a long time ago now, is the last mile of it was all sewage surveillance in developing countries to figure out where there was not sufficient inoculation of where the virus still existed. So we knew that it has, a, has been a proven tool 
in the developing countries, but it wasn't really used in the developed world. To give you a sense of what the work is, and, you know, you've got choices for how you want to get the sewage out of the pipes. The nice gentleman with the bucket, that's such, it's called a grab sample, because you're just grabbing it right out of the flow that's going by. You can put a device that is going to grab a little sample every 15 minutes, a few milliliters every 15 minutes, and that'll get over 24 hours what we call a composite sample. It's a composite of everybody that contributed in that 24 hours. Or you can go to the wastewater treatment plant, and in Louisville, Kentucky, we have five of these. And there is essentially, it's kind of a Guinness tap handle that you can pull and you can fill a jar with whatever's coming through the treatment plant that day. Or you can get a composite tap if you want, where they're doing it, because they have to do that for regulatory sampling. So the wastewater treatment plants have always been testing wastewater, both what's coming in and what's going out, because the EPA requires that they do that. Once you get the stuff out of the ground and in a bottle, um, you're really taking it to a laboratory and you're doing exactly what we do with those nasal swab tests. So, you know, once you filter the visible large garbage out, and a lot of it is garbage, you get to a part of the sample that is a lot like what you would stir around in a test tube when you took a home self-test. And then you're doing exactly the same thing that we do with PCR tests for clinical samples. We are looking for genes of the SARS virus. Uh, we have been looking for a particular gene called the nucleocapsid gene, which is the main body of the virus. There are other genes, the spike gene, remember the spike? So the spike gene uh, is another target. There's an envelope gene. It turns out everybody that went looking for the spike gene was disappointed when we made a vaccine that made you make the spike gene. And so those people all had to switch because you couldn't tell the difference between somebody who was vaccinated and somebody who was infected. So we were on the right side of history for that. So then we have the framework question. So you want to use this tool, you say you're going to figure out how much infection there is in a place, how big is the place? And so, you know, if we've gone as large as all of Jefferson County, so taking our five wastewater treatment plants, averaging them all together and saying what's going on in Jefferson County, we have gone into, in the middle case, 17 individual areas, think of them as collections of neighborhoods, so call it 20,000 people. So that gives us like what's happening in this part of Jefferson County versus that part, and how's it moving around. Or you could go all the way down to facilities. And a lot of the early glamour was uh, work in nursing homes, uh, correctional facilities. So there you're looking at a picture of one of our state prisons. That is a situation where you have a vulnerable population. I mean, if you're incarcerated, that is worst case scenario in the case of an infectious disease, for sure. So you don't have the ability to run away or go away from it. And so you are a ward of the state, and, or if you're in a federal prison, a ward of the federal government. And so there's a real responsibility to keep you um, safe, right? And so early in the pandemic, late 2020, Commissioner Stack listened to our crazy pitch that we could look at sewage. And, um, and he really he cut us a break. I give him full credit for this. He took a risk. We did a pilot with two prisons, and uh, we showed that we could find this virus, and it seemed to align with where, where they were having outbreaks in these facilities. And so then we have ever since then um, been monitoring 14, all 14 of our state prisons of, um, in Kentucky three times a week. And it has been a remarkable tool. So that's facilities. Now we've done that also in nursing homes. Um, other communities have done it in like elementary schools and high schools. Um, we've done it in affordable housing complexes um, at different points of the pandemic. There's a simple framework that we developed early on in the pandemic. This is we're really focused on doing more um, targeted um, vaccination, more targeted testing programs. So wherever we saw there were parts of the community where 
where things were a little out of control compared to everything else, that was an opportunity to spend more time being present from a public health perspective in those places. So that's what you can do at that level. And then at the whole community level, you know, you're really down to hard decisions that we've all lived through now. What, you know, these are lockdowns and these are curtailing hours or whatever. In the most extreme cases, you know, if you really are very concerned about protecting the population, you're, you're in the, one of those public health emergencies. And really, that was probably the hardest part of the pandemic was really trying to figure out what the new social rules would be for all of society and not just for Louisville, right? For all of Kentucky and for all these other states. So at the lowest level, individual facilities. So here's a dashboard that was developed for the corrections work. All the little dots are correctional facilities in Kentucky. The little bars are how much um, SARS we find in their sewage. And I can tell you two stories. I'll tell you the happy story and the sad story. So the happy story is on the top where the blue bar is when we see the SARS virus, the virus that causes COVID. The orange line is when uh, inmates have been tested positive. And so you can see, and this is October, November 2022, Prison A, you can see that we had these blue bars pop up, and then a few days later, we started finding cases, right? And then those cases got isolated. And, and then what happens is there's a resolution, right? So the wastewater levels. A virus, that is. Go down and eventually the, the people that were tested are allowed to go back out into circulation. And so you averted further transmission because you started some kind of intervention when you saw that there was the presence of the virus. Now then there's prison B where we see the wastewater go up and nothing happened. And, you know, and then nothing happened, and it really depends. Each of these facilities, it's a little bit like school districts, like they have their own warden, like you have a principal in a school, and they have a lot of uh, control about what measures they will take. And so in some cases, we didn't get the, we're going to go out and test and figure out where all the infected inmates are. Um, you know, sometimes they let it ride. And so um, it's been difficult then as a researcher to figure out how well it works if you're really dependent on this other data point, right? The testing point, we don't have any control over that. And it turns out that's the thing that gives everybody the satisfaction that it's working well. You say, well, look at all the positive cases that I found. So you'll see this is gonna be a recurring theme. In the senior centers, a similar kind of dynamic. When we see wastewater go up and then blue is when we uh, find in the case of nursing homes, either staff or residents uh, who are infected. And, you know, we see pretty good correspondence. We're seeing the wastewater go up. We're seeing people identified as positive. On the right, uh, we're seeing positive cases without anything in the wastewater. And the one thing that we learned about senior living facilities is that not everybody uses the toilet. And so you would think with all this education that all of us had, and I blame the UK team, not our team, but <laughs> nobody thought about the diapers that were leaving the building because they were leaving with the COVID. So um, we learned that lesson. So let's, let's jump up to the top, full community level work. So here is Jefferson County, Louisville, Metro. This is what it looks like on the sewer side. So those are all of our sewer pipes in Jefferson County. And so if you were to divide up Jefferson County, you have, I mean, our view of it isn't necessarily the neighborhood boundaries or the zip codes or census tracts that everybody else likes to think about. We have to think about where the pipes are. All of these pipes are ultimately gravity feeding into one of five wastewater treatment plants. We have two very large plants on the west side of our city, Morse Foreman, which many of you have probably heard of. It's over sort of by Shawnee. Uh, it supports 400,000 residents. 
Derek Guthrie in the south um, supports another couple hundred thousand. And then as we went east and settled the eastern suburbs, as enough people got there, the EPA says, well, you know, you're going to need more wastewater treatment. And so there are three independent plants that are much newer uh, on the eastern frontier of our, our county. And so that's sort of how it's divided up. We've done some work to try to demonstrate quantitatively what the relationship is between what we pull out of the wastewater and how many people are infected. This is a very valuable question, theoretically, early on in the pandemic. Somebody would say, okay, so you found a million copies of the virus in the sewage, how many people are sick? And nobody can answer that question. So we did um, an ambitious clinical study in Louisville, it's called the Co-Immunity Project, and we went around randomly testing. So we sent postcards to people's houses in three very large waves and asked people to come and get tested. We asked them to get the nasal swab and we took a blood prick to get uh, antibodies if you were infected before. So we could get a picture of the prevalence. And so we did that. We randomly selected people out of Louisville, a couple thousand people. Uh, and then we looked at the sewage. All the dots are people that participated in the projects so all over Jefferson County, uh, randomly pulled out of a hat and um, wastewater from all over Jefferson County. And so over time, you can see that as we tested a random selection of people, the amount of antibodies in their blood was going up, right? You would expect that, because over the course of this pandemic, people have gotten infected, some people have gotten infected multiple times, and so we've been accumulating infected people. That's one way to think about what's been happening in the pandemic. Now the other side of it is say, well, we've been building all sorts of immunity, right? So we've been getting vaccines and we've been getting sick, and we've been getting a lot of immunity. We've been measuring that immunity in this project. That data collection stopped before the vaccine was available. And so, so we saw what you would expect. So increasing amounts of infection. So this is from February 20 to 22. So showing up just before the vaccine, which was sort of February, March 21. You randomly asked, but that doesn't mean randomly people showed up. Yeah, so then what statisticians do is a lot of waiting on the back end. So if we didn't get enough people in this area, we then had to wait the people that did show up, right? And so it wasn't equal waiting across the whole sample. The one way the statisticians look at it is like all the different Louisvilles there are. So there are different affinity groups that coalesce in different parts of Jefferson County. And so these are all representative samples of the different parts of Jefferson County. And so then here's the answer to the question. How much you know, does each amount of the wastewater translate into cases in the community? So let's call it 1.3 cases per 100,000 residents for every increment in the amount of wastewater uh, RNA we recovered. And so we were waiting for a Nobel Prize. It never arrived <laughs> because the virus changed and everybody else changed, right? So it was moving as a moving target on both sides. And so that number is absolutely correct for that moment in time. And you can imagine uh, that number is no longer any good because we have seen a lot of immunity broadly across the community. And so we have a lot of COVID, but we don't have the same kind of acuity. The infection profile is very different. There's a big difference between alpha, the original variant, and Omicron. You know, Omicron is much more transmissible, so there's a lot more of it out there, but it's less acute for most people. So it is a different threat profile and it really created a whole different level of concern. And so let's talk a little bit about what you can do at the neighborhood level. So here we have all of these different little catchment areas across Jefferson County, which are really collections of neighborhoods. They have different demographics and different race mix, different income. And essentially we picked areas that were 
sufficiently different so that we could learn a little bit about health geography while we were going. So if there was something about a particular catchment area, remember these aren't census tracts or zip codes, these are sewer pipe collections, and so we had to sort of define areas based on what was mostly in common with the people above those defined catchment areas. Louisville's kind of a special place because we do have a sewer network that has a number of, I'll call them dead ends in the pipes, meaning we're not just conveying sewage from the east side of town to the west side of town. We were sort of competing, if you will, with people that said, all you need to do is go pull that tap handle with a treatment plant. It's so much easier and cost effective. Why wouldn't you just do that? Why are you guys out there with your composite samplers out there in neighborhoods? You don't need to do all that. You just go to the treatment plant. Think of these as like neighborhoods, right? So it's a couple of neighborhoods. Maybe it's Shawnee and Portland and it's Shively and whatever. So those are those first two bars. Then you have the bar that is the wastewater treatment plant that those two communities fed into. So now we say, well, how much virus is present in each of those places? And so you can see, you know, when you get to the treatment plant, like not very much is there, right? So there's a lot in the neighborhood, but there's not so much at the treatment plant. Then you get here. And so here you have a neighborhood that has very high level of virus in their wastewater. And um, it happens to be sitting, you know, a few mile, a mile away or so from a neighborhood that doesn't have very much in it. And by the time it gets to the wastewater treatment plant, that's what we conclude. We say, well, that's not so bad, right? Well, it's not so bad unless if you live here. And then it's really, really bad. And so these, um, what we've come to understand is this is an equity issue that we were essentially blinding ourselves to these underlying differences by not doing this work out in the community. So at the treatment plant, you're just blending all the communities together. So the melting pot analogy for sewage applies here. But if you really want to understand, well, which neighborhoods need help, you're not going to learn it by looking at that combined average, right? Yeah. So at one point, the health department asked us if we could use the sewage to figure out where there was under-testing across Jefferson County. So they knew we were out there all over the place. We're spending all this stimulus money. We got a good picture of what's going on. So here's a little truth checker for us. So when we looked at all the tests that they did, and this is over a period of time, 12, 6, 21 through 110, 22, and we counted up all the tests that were administered in all of these different places. And these places had different population sizes that they were, they were being um, supported, right? And so we could look at all the numbers of people in all their different catchment areas, and we could see how many tests were done in all those areas. And what you see is a perfect linear correspondence. If there's more people, there's more tests. If there's fewer people, there's fewer tests. So you'd call that just an equitable testing, right? Well, when you look at the sewage, you get a different story. So if I look at this is positivity rate, and all the little dots are all those little catchment areas where we're pulling out the virus. So as we see a little bit of virus in the wastewater, the positivity rate is low-er. Then when we see more virus in the wastewater, the positivity rate is high-er, right? And it follows that beautiful relationship until the elbow. And the elbow is the beginning of inequity. And so now the wastewater level of virus, according to us, is going up, 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 up. It's going up, 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 up. But the positivity rate is flat. Now, that doesn't make any sense, right? So we're pulling out a lot more virus, and we're told that in this part of Jefferson County, positivity rate is, you know, relatively low, comparatively speaking, right? And so then we just simply, this is not rocket science, we wrote down the names of all those places and said, health department, this is a good place for community testing sites, yeah. right? We did the same thing for vaccination um, a year later.
you know, so I was able to call Dr. Moyer at the time and say, go to these places. And they went to those places. You know, it's, it's hard to keep beating up on the health department because they're working as hard as they can and it's pretty difficult. Is there anything we can do to help the health department based on the information that we have? So what we did is we took all that information I just shared with you where we know that there's more infection uh, than you would find in any other parts of Jefferson County. And could we, using your sewer shed, the, the catchment area that you don't even know you live in, could I create advertising and set a boundary and deliver digital ads on your phone or on your tablet or whatever it is just in that area? And what if I use pictures of the place you live and people you know, community leaders in your particular neighborhood? And so this geo-targeted digital advertising which you know had various kinds of messages about you know the sewage you know says that there's a lot of infection in your area you should get tested you should get vaccinated we run millions of these ads in these places and i have once again two stories a happy story and a sad story so the happy story so here we are preston and south park um, so we're running ads in this little period. I'm not here to say we caught all the positive people or got all the positive. Just did we increase the amount of testing activity, right? Whether it was positive or negative tested. Do more people go get testing? That's the question. So this is messy, right? Because this is all the testing that was going on all the time. Varied with the weather and the news. And so here's the period we're running the ads. We have a control community where we're running either sham ads, ads about something else, or no ads. And um, so you can see we're not running ads, so there's nothing bracketed out, but that's the period that they were running ads in the other community. And then if I just subtract the amount of tests from those two very comparable neighborhoods, do I see a difference in testing? And so no difference would be essentially zero across the board. And you can see we had a little bit of a bump in testing with, between these two communities, relatively speaking, during the ad period, right? So we felt really good about that until we looked at these. And so when we're at the Cedar Creek and Pineland, and these are the, so there's the, the same deal. Like ran the ads, here's our match control. And guess what? When you strike the two from each other, you get no difference. And so it's, a, it's science, right? It's not gambling. It's fine. I mean, we learned something. We learned that there are probably many factors involved. How much advertising you did, how long you do it, whether people use digital devices. I mean, all kinds of good questions about why it worked or why it didn't work. So now we're at the big picture. Because uh, last time I was here, we were still pretty nervous about the pandemic. We're in a different situation right now. And I guess it's probably important to just remind us the situation that we're in. So we have, as a community, survived three major surges of COVID of uh, variants and the initial surge, right, that happened in June, May, June of 2020. And so the variants that we saw, Alpha, Delta, and Omicron, and then all the sub-variants that have all their clever names and numbers, this is the major profile that we've all survived in these different periods of time. This is for Kentucky, all of Kentucky. So this is cases per 100,000 people. And so that Omicron surge, that was a pretty big deal, right? Lots of people got COVID. But then when I go look at deaths, not lots of people proportionately died. And so that's good news for all of us, right? A lot of people died in the alpha variant. But by the time Omicron showed up, while there were a lot of people that were sick, there were not a lot of people that were dying. We had a lot more people infected, a lot more people infected, and yet the death numbers were about the same. And that's another way to sort of back into, it had become less lethal for all sorts of reasons, right? Many of them, I would assume, are related to vaccination. Some of them, I assume, are related to infection, 
But between the two of them, it became a lot less lethal, and we're grateful for that. Some of it, of course, is the nature of the virus. It's trying to survive, right? So killing off everybody's not a good virus strategy. So you know, everybody was imagining the thing will become less dangerous, hopefully, over time. And it has become, for a variety of circumstances, less dangerous. And so if you look right now at death, I mean, here we are way at the bottom. And we have been cruising. And I can show you hospital statistics. Show you everything looks like this. We are in this cruising. You know, it's not gone. It's not everywhere. It's here. It's in our community constantly. But it's less acute, right? So this is what we've all lived through. When we were looking at the variants, so in February of 2021, we got an expensive piece of equipment and repurposed it to go look at the genetic sequence of everything we pulled out of the wastewater. One of the first communities in the United States to do this work where we essentially just looked at everything, right? Um, versus just having a special test that was looking for the one variant. And then you'd have a special test that looked for another variant. We used a very expensive piece of machinery that looked at every gene that it saw. And we were able to, and these are our different wastewater treatment plants, we were able to watch everything come and go. So this is alpha, if it's red, and time at the bottom, right? Here's delta, and here is Omicron, so BA1, BA2, and then we got to BA4, BA5, and now we're on XB11, whatever. These are all versions of Omicron. It's not a new version of SARS. It's just a subversion of Omicron. I can show you how they different variants came into different communities in Louisville. So here's Alpha, you know, this is uh, March of 2021 through June of um, 2021. So there it is. And then it gets displaced by Delta, you know, all the way out to March of 2022. Here comes Omicron in that community. So we can look and look at every place and we saw all these profiles and different parts of our community had different profiles of when things would show up. Some parts of our community, things would show up first. Some parts of our community, things would show up last. Always showed up, but just different times. Here is um, a snapshot that we just put on our dashboard. If you go to our website. You can go to their website by Googling UofL Envirome, spelled E-N-V-I-R-O-M, as in Mary, E. Um, you can see that we publish this dashboard and update it every week. So we are officially in the not much happening phase. Um, you know, bad news is it's not going down. Good news is it's not going up. And more importantly, when we look at the acuity, so what's going on in the healthcare system, uh, so this is new admissions, new hospital admissions with COVID. Doesn't mean you came into the hospital because of COVID, but when you came into the hospital, you got tested, and if you had COVID, you had COVID. And up during the pandemic, that kind of diagnosis has changed. So a lot of people are going to the hospital with COVID, coming for some other reason. Nobody knows the whole breakdown of that. But I do know that generally speaking, admissions with COVID have been declining um, pretty reliably for the past six months. Okay, so hospital admissions with COVID are on the decline. Here's our wastewater level, not declining. Okay, here's Omicron, wastewater's higher, declining. Here's hospital uh, admissions with COVID, high and declining. Then, you know, we see the wastewater going up, we see some of those cases going up, and then it's been pretty flat and what we call sort of moderate levels of virus compared to our, all of our historic values. And yet the hospital data has been improving over time. If I look at the percentage of beds with COVID in the ICU, you can see 
as a proportion, not a big swing, right? So the hospitals are not concerned. You can call any of our hospital systems today. They are not concerned at this moment because they still have plenty of ICU beds, not the situation we're in in 2020, not the situation we're in in 2021, but that is the situation we're in now. So asking the big question now, what does it mean to have SARS virus in your wastewater? It means something different today than it meant a year ago, than it meant two years ago. And so this is kind of how we have to roll with the punches, right? Like, what do we make of the situation? I mean, this is another way to look at it. I can look at it as what was the lowest amount of virus that was in our wastewater associated with the lowest amount of hospitalization. And then I could divide all the values by what that number was. And I can see today we are at 10 times the level of virus in the wastewater than we were at at the lowest point in the last year in our community. Not sure what to make of that. We've sort of done the other analysis, like what's the most we've ever seen and the most hospitalization recently. Bigger uh, picture for everybody. So when I spoke with you last, the CDC was standing up what they call the National Wastewater Surveillance System, the NEWS system. And so the CDC has made some money available to states and a few independent laboratories to um, essentially centralize the reporting of wastewater monitoring across the country. So all of those dots are active sites in the United States where wastewater is being monitored today. And so this is us right here. Um, there's only two other sites in Kentucky that are actively monitoring. Ohio and Indiana and New York are robust and the Carolinas robust adopters of the platform. But I mean, look at Texas. I mean, there's really nothing going on there, right? There's not much going on in Florida. I mean, where people live, right? This has been encouraging. So we've been part of, I think, an informative infrastructure, right? So we want to know not only what's happening in our community, but we'd like to know what's happening in adjacent communities or in points of entry in the United States. And so um, the CDC is trying to implement this system. I'll just tell you one little bit of inside baseball. The CDC is not in charge of the sewer system. So if you run a wastewater utility and the CDC calls and says, I'd like you to monitor the wastewater, they hang up a lot of the time. Just So um, a huge disconnect. You know, so while you think, oh, this is great, we can all do wastewater you know, monitoring for infectious diseases and all sorts of other health threats, the answer is no, we can't do that because we haven't from a regulatory perspective, brought the wastewater infrastructure into the public health frame. And so they're with, absolutely within their rights to just say, no, we're not interested, right? Or you as citizens could call the Public Utility Commission and say, I don't like what that Ted Smith's doing, and I want you to tell him to stop. And could, right? Absolutely could. So, you know, it's not part of the public health infrastructure. And so I'm a little skeptical where this is all gonna go. And if it were to just be about COVID, it's probably not going anywhere, right? I mean, most people are past it, and most of the money that was allocated for it is gone or is going away. So, you know, maybe that strategy wasn't going to stick. Well, and in Kentucky, there was real animus against the public health. Absolutely. Well, many different states, you had very different reactions, right? And so we've seen all versions of public health in this country. I'll just... Transition a little. So apropos to, is there any future talking about COVID and sewers? My answer is there's probably not a bright future talking about COVID and sewers. I think we're going to have COVID and sewers for a long time. I think this is an endemic infection. We're going to have it for a long time. It's not even seasonal at this point in time. Like it's just always there. And so um, I'd love to see it going away. It doesn't seem to be going away. It does seem to be less acute. So we'll take that as, as good news. But a lot of the community that has been looking at this 
you wouldn't be surprised and says, what else can we find? And so we have a, a partnership slash alliance with a team out of Stanford. They're looking for COVID. Let's look at influenza. So seasonal flu, right? And so here you can see, and the dates are hard to read. September of 2022 comes flu season. So this is the first time we've been able to document the arrival and mostly departure of seasonal flu. So usually we know flu season is here when physicians' practices, when hospitals, it's a, it's a lagging indicator, easily lagging by three weeks or more, right? So if you were a school principal, wouldn't you like to know when the flu showing up? I promise you we could tell you when the flu shows up in Jefferson County. Um, here's monkeypox. Monkeypox, remember, that was going to be the next big thing that was going to terrify everybody. No monkeypox uh, in Jefferson County in the sewage. Uh, RSV, so that other respiratory infection that we had about the same time we had the flu, and we had it at the same time, so it was called the trifecta, right? We had COVID, we had RSV, and we had seasonal flu at the same time. Some people getting one or two or three of those things at the same time. So there you go. So in and out with RSV, we think that's mostly gone. Another pneumovirus, we don't quite understand what's going on with that. So what our laboratory is doing is we now have a pan-pathogen panel. So it's 29 human viruses. Some of them are of high concern, like polio, and some of them are of more academic concern, things that might jump from animals to people. Uh, and then we are looking for 41 um, virus and bacterial genes that are antimicrobial resistant. And so if you're all familiar with hospital-acquired infections, some of them are very bad. They can't be treated with antibiotics and people die. It happens every day of the week in the United States. So we have, with our high antibiotic culture, trained a whole bunch of organisms to hide from our antibiotics. And it is a significant threat to us all. And it is a, certainly it's a big deal for the healthcare system because when you bring people in, they're vulnerable. And if you have these superbugs that you can't treat, it's a problem. So we want to know which superbugs we have. And this is one thing that we're good at with, uh, with this work. These are all things we're looking for today. So um, we sequence for all this stuff. And like I said, some of them are exotic and some of them are just important to know about. So you may remember polio showed up in New York City a while back. Yeah. The state of New York declared it a public health emergency. They had all kinds of things and concerns. Um, we've been surveilling for polio ever since and haven't seen any of it. And that's good news. But, you know, hepatitis, um, anthrax, I mean, all sorts of things. It costs us nothing to look for every incremental thing. So if I put a thousand things up here, it costs me the same amount of money to find a thousand things that it costs to find 30 things. And so we're getting some kind of efficiency out of that, right? When we find these things, uh, we find them in all of those little catchment areas. And so there's a little table that says, you found it there, you found it there. You found... So we found Boca virus everywhere, except for in the control. You don't want to find it in the control because that's just water. Um, you know, no, no measles, no monkeypox, uh, none of the hepatitises that we could see. So if you care about surveilling what's happening in the community, where the risks are, this has proven to be a way to do that. On the antimicrobials, very same thing. So we're looking for genes in these bacteria and viruses that are resistant to, uh, in the case of bacteria, to the antibiotics, the viruses, other uh, microbials. And um, the state seems to care a lot more about that than Metro does. So we're, we have a regular sharing session with the state about all the antimicrobial work. Really where we're going from here, we are chronic disease people. We care about heart disease. We care about things like pollution. So there were two places in the United States that created the EPA Superfund program. One was Valley of the Drums. What was the other one? It's in New York. Love Canal. So 
I think we win because ours was the worst. So well, I got the stats. 13 acres with 17,000 barrels on it. And 11,000 of them were emptied on the site. All full of terrible, nasty toxins. And so um, when that site was discovered and the operators sort of evaporated, it became um, an issue for the United States government to essentially say, who can afford to clean this up, right? So the Superfund program was born, and it, like the name sounds, it's Superfund. It's a, it's a bunch of money. It turns out it's not enough for all the things that we've ruined. But um, it is important that we have it because we do have all these situations where industry has abandoned a site or some other terrible behavior has created some awful uh, public health disaster. So the Valley of the Drums um, is our, in our backyard, as is Lee's Lane Landfield over uh, in West Louisville, um, another site full of drums uh, that was a landfill. Um, and then down there is the train wreck we all just saw on the border of Ohio and Pennsylvania. So for us, we have been looking for urinary metabolites of exposure to air pollution. And so we have a project in South Louisville called the Green Heart Project where we've been looking at air pollution for six years. And uh, this is what an air monitor will tell you. Every little red spike is some high level of um, a certain kind of air pollutant. And there you see the sewer pipes in that same neighborhood. And what we have done is we have identified in the urine out of the sewer system these metabolites. What happens when the, when the pollutant comes into your lungs and then gets into your body, your body will then attempt to get rid of it. And in the process of getting rid of it, it will attach itself and we can find the signature of the piece that attaches to it. And that metabolite is proof that you've been exposed to that pollutant. It's a perfect fingerprint. It is only made when it encounters that toxin. So we're not measuring the toxin, because there's all kinds of mess you can get into when you tell, oh, look what my air monitor found. But if I said, well, this is what came out of somebody's body, therefore they were exposed to this, and that's a bad thing. So um, our work has shifted, and unfortunately there's an abundant supply of this kind of work where we're looking for different air pollutants and uh, demonstrate a proof that people have been exposed to these pollutants. And really try to accelerate the timeline for getting the appropriate response for uh, pollution control. And so that's uh, something we're doing. We're trying to get it wrapped up for the, that whole plume thing, right, that's coming down from the train wreck. Uh, so I've been on the phone today looking for sewage up the river um, and we've got folks in the lab that are trying to figure out if they can see the metabolite for vinyl chloride. And so nobody can prepare for this, all possible situations, so we're moving as fast as we can. But it is interesting to try to move the conversation from, you know, to come test my water, to has there been anybody exposed in any of these areas, and, and then really put resources where there's been exposure, or adjacent to exposure, right where there could be future exposure, you know, we'd like to think that everything we learned during the pandemic, sort of precision public health, could be and should be applied to these other situations. So we are working on that right now. We are also working on, if you've heard of forever chemicals, PFAS, PFOA, these fluorinated Teflon thingies. Um, so we have a little project in Shepherdsville where we're looking at the sewage to look for gradients of PFAS across their sewer system to determine if there could be exposure in certain areas or if there could be sources. There's a distiller down there that it could be a source and we're going to be interested in trying to understand that. So that's another direction that we're going. And then I will close with um, many people when we started this work were 
uh, concerned that their privacy was being violated, right? So you're monitoring my what, and I didn't, you know, like, I pay MSD to make it go away. I don't pay, you know, to have somebody do a science experiment. So we did a national public opinion survey a year ago, and we're doing, we're refielding it right now, um, where we're asking the public what they think about all the different dimensions of this work. And so this is the only survey of national scope that's been done in wastewater surveillance, which is mind-boggling to me personally. Um, to try to understand where the boundaries are, right? Like, what is too small of an area to monitor, right? We, I think we would all agree, like, a toilet in your house is too small of an area, but, like, your house is also generally too small of an area. Maybe the three houses along your block still too small of an area, right? Where do we start to say, well, that's anonymous, right? I don't feel that my privacy has been violated. So we ask questions like that to try to understand how the sensitivity changes or whether it never goes away, right? And in some cases, you have people say there's no amount of this that's acceptable. Now, the good news is after the first survey last year, the overwhelming majority of people are supportive of the use of this and see it as anonymous, which it is. Um, but, you know, we always need to be vigilant about these things, right? Like, it's, it's part of our nature as, uh, as Americans to be concerned about our liberty and our moral hazards and all these things, right? So um, just know that we, we care about that. We take it very seriously. We're not taking it for granted. Um, it's a two-way street. And then I don't do any of this stuff by myself, and here's a whole bunch of people that actually did all the work, and I get to come and talk to you about it. But thank you very much. Happy to take any questions. How do current COVID levels in the United States compare to those in European countries? Generally speaking, across the developed world, Everybody is in the same position we're in, which is there is no country that has seen some eradication of this virus, to my knowledge. And so we're all kind of documenting what I think of as like a steady state situation. We could have some other variant, some crazy terrible variant of this, and we are ready to go switch all the machines back on to go looking for that. But if we don't have that, then we have to sort of decide how we live then with an endemic virus like this with us forever. You said you were looking at heart disease and asthma and so forth. How's that developed? So, um, you know, with the pandemic, we had a lot of uh, folks who didn't seek health care for lots of good reasons and healthcare facilities having a hard time. So there were a number of people with chronic diseases that didn't get the care they probably would have benefited from. And so now we're going from the, you know, number one killer of Americans being this pathogen to back to the number one killer being heart disease and cancer. And so um, we're, we're back at it. We're back on it. You know, in Louisville, we have a lot of um, disparities across our community. So a lot of our interest is really trying to get a handle on what would make a big difference to reduce cardiovascular disease in specific areas of Jefferson County rather than just general information about good diet and exercise. How do we get to some specific activities in specific places and I credit the pandemic with giving everybody the courage to think in that much more sort of tactical way. Can you explain the Green Heart Project? The Green Heart Project um, is an ambitious, uh, it's called a community clinical trial and a community clinical trial as it sounds is a trial that you enroll people in a particular place and um, the hypothesis that we're querying is living near greenness vegetation we know has health benefits right that's been demonstrated in associative studies correlational studies hundreds of times but what we don't know is whether vegetation causes a reduction in a specific kind of risk 
So if it's just correlated, like bars and churches are correlated, but they don't cause each other to my knowledge, um, we, we have to really tease this apart because if vegetation, trees and bushes, actually reduce cardiovascular disease risk, then as a people, we should be interested in uh, diversifying our portfolio to not only include statins, but cedars and poplars, right? So it could be a very, very viable strategy to reduce the burden of heart disease in the United States. And so this project is in four neighborhoods in South Louisville, kind of the area below Churchill Downs to the west of the airport, um, you know, sort of Taylor, Jacobs, Barry, that, that area. It's home to about 22,000 people, and we have planted 8,000 trees and large bushes in half of that area, and we have a match control there. And we, we enrolled 1,200 people before we planted, and then we planted half the area, and we are testing everybody that we've enrolled. And so what we told the National Institutes of Health and the Nature Conservancy is that we believe that vegetation mitigates that exposure to air pollution. So I showed you that heat map at the beginning here. One of those red dots is over our study area. And so we said, gosh, if there's targeted air pollution that's higher than in other parts of Jefferson County, not only does it cause asthma problems, but it causes heart disease. And so uh, that was one of the connections between those two projects. So the Green Heart Project is in its sixth year now. We're going up for renewal. Familiar with the Framingham, Massachusetts heart study. Framingham study told us everything we needed to know in the early days about where heart attacks came from. We think that this project for the country will be the next national cohort for heart disease where we're really testing the environmental questions. You know, how can we change the environment to treat heart disease, really prevent heart disease or slow it down? And the preliminary data is remarkably promising. It looks really good. And so um, hopefully we'll be doing it for a long time. Do you have a source for public information so that people can find out what you're doing and what it means? So if you Google the Envirome Institute, and you could even Google wastewater and Envirome Institute, you will get um, a link and it will have our dashboard. And we update that dashboard weekly with what we have. Is there a possibility long term to survey rural areas? So most of the country said, too bad for you if you're not in the sewer system. We, and actually in partnership with our colleagues at UK, we've been working on a variety of different approaches. Um, one of those approaches, and I know this might sound a little gross, but it involves instead of having a complicated, expensive piece of equipment to do the sampling, you can literally use a tampon and you can drop it in a septic tank, you could put it in a stream, and it works within 80% of what that expensive piece of equipment does. Wow. And so really then the, the last mile problem is the logistics of getting all the samples back to a place to get tested. And so I'm very optimistic that we will solve for the last mile on, um, on sewage if we want to. It's not, it's not that we can't figure it out, it's just which way do we want to go. Was your team suddenly aware of the switch from Alpha to Delta Omicron and what was your response? So we saw generally things coming from Europe into the United States. So in all cases, these variants were seen in another country before they were here. And so I guess we weren't surprised because we knew that these variants had appeared in other communities and it would just be a matter of competition and time. You mentioned cardiovascular disease being high in Kentucky compared to other states and related to pollution. But then you also said that the highest rates occur in neighborhoods near major roads. But this doesn't distinguish Kentucky from any other state. That's right. 
So could you explain that? Well, so Kentucky has a number of distinctions. And the part of the first one that we all have to say out loud is the much higher smoking rates in this state. So the number one killer of people is tobacco products. If you were just to say, let's all smoke today, that would be the thing that will kill you. Um, and it will kill you not from lung cancer, it will kill you from heart disease more than likely. And so in Kentucky, we have a great history of tobacco and tobacco products. If you live near roadways in a state where there's already high smoking, now you get another hit. Then, if you have air pollution issues, and we have air pollution issues in our community, and it's not just heart disease, cardiometabolic disease, so diabetes and obesity fit in exactly the same situation because it messes with your um, glucose metabolism. You kind of answered this at the beginning of your presentation. Is Louisville testing for various drugs in sewage effluent? As yes, so. happened in Canada and in Europe. Nope. Nope. And we've been, even with the work with corrections, I mean, people have suggested it. I've talked to Commissioner Cruz, who runs corrections for the state. Unlike COVID, where you'd say, I might be able to help you understand if you're going to have an outbreak, um, this isn't incremental, valuable information. I mean, they have their own strategies and their own challenges in corrections as it relates to illicit drugs. They're working on those. There's nothing that I believe we could add to that conversation. And then by the time you get out in the community, we have better things to do than, uh, you know, kick over hornet's nests. So. I just wanted to confirm that your testing methods do not inadvertently include the particles that come from vaccines. So what the vaccine does is it tells your body to make the spike protein so that your immune system knows to go find the spike protein. When we are testing, we aren't testing for the spike protein, like those people at Stanford are. We're testing for the nucleocapsid gene, which is the virus itself. Right? So we don't capture anybody that has um, been just vaccinated. We get people who are infected, actively infected. So I hope that's clear. Are we concerned that this testing and things that you find and may find in the future affect our health insurance and our life insurance premiums? It's a really good question. And when you think about the private sector motivations to invest in this category, that is an interest. And I, I don't know if it's an interest to raise insurance premiums, but I think if you look at Medicaid specifically, one of the issues that managed Medicaid operators have is they don't know what they're getting into when they move into a community because the data uh, tends to be inaccurate, insufficient, right? So they're, they're gonna sign people up and they're not really sure what they're gonna get. And what happens is either I think they kind of do okay financially or they lose a lot of money, generally speaking. And so then that just becomes a big issue with the states and the federal government about you know, the reimbursement rates. But clearly there is an, an incentive on their part to want to um, protect themselves from extra underwriting risk, right? Now, I think they're so busy working in the 1990s with all of their health information systems that they have zero interest in uh, exploring technologies like this. I mean, they're, they're still sending faxes to people, right? Yeah. So I think we should always be vigilant with any kind of information technology, and this is clearly an information technology, but I don't see the forces aligning. Remember what I said about the wastewater utilities? Like, if, if they won't listen to the health department, I have a hard time imagining they'll take a risk with a private company because remember, they're all regulated by public utility commissions for the most part. So I think in a weird way, the checks that we have in the system are going to slow the train down. And then there's our infrastructure. So we just have a terrible old infrastructure that is just not very good um, and, and is a source of tremendous amounts of noise. So 
I think there are a lot of factors that are keeping this from being the greatest gold mine for a business to do something exploitive, but we should obviously be vigilant, right? Always cautious about where we're going, always asking those questions. I'd like to think there's a positive side to that, which is if we really did know that there were problems in some communities, nutrition or some kind of chronic disease risk, that we would want to do something good, right? I mean, so I also don't want to bury our heads in the sand and say, well, we don't want to know that there's differences in health. We do want to know that there's differences in health, but we don't want people profiting or making it worse. So I don't know. I love the question. It's a really important question. Yeah, it's a good question. With the innovation of using wastewater to address public health, and you talked about diseases that we have, the most, the, a infection of Louisville that causes deleterious health outcomes is racism. So in Byrome, do you, can you bring that innovation to study racism and then the consequences health impacts of it in all its multitudinous ways? It is a great question slash observation. Um, we are adding uh, a new faculty member that I can't announce uh, in a few months, but he's well known to many in our community, um, to help us with that. It is pretty far afield of where most of our training is and our expertise is, so I think we also uh, want to approach that respectfully and humbly. Right? I think we want to apply the same kind of rigor that we're applying to the Green Heart Project to the question of racism, right? And I think it's, a, it's in some ways a much harder problem, and so um, not doesn't make it one that we shouldn't pursue. It just, I think with all humility, we say it's a tough one. And I think we have to, for, for us, we, we can think of like physical health as a much more of a like a basic science question, you know, physiology and chemistry and, you know, this genomics, all that simple stuff. You know, as you move into the social constructs, psychology, perception, it just gets a lot harder to figure out what the assault is and what the response is. And now we know there are physiological consequences to racism, right? So we can see biomarkers, right, of essentially being victimized by racism, but what is the stimulus, right? And, and, and being clear about that, it's just like um, in, my, in my other life, like chasing fence line polluters, like they get you on the, you didn't prove that I did the thing, right? If you don't know what the thing is that they did, you can't ever get to justice. And so I think that's the, in my mind, the hardest part about that issue is how do you really describe it in a way that is robust? We don't know all of the things that contribute from our environment. The, there's an economic dynamic, too, and attitudinal dynamics that build into the racism. That racism, there are several components. It's like spinach isn't one yeah, thing. Yeah, right. Or healthy vegetables aren't one thing. And we have really been into being very uh, micro-focused rather than wanting to see the total picture. So how do we encourage that type of thinking? Uh, you probably know as well as I do. Uh, I mean, I would say one of the things philosophically we're trying to do with our work is balance out the attractive problem of, um, we call it toxicology. So toxicology is things that will kill you, right? And so if you spend all of your time documenting all of the ways that you could be killed, 
you still wouldn't answer the question, how do I thrive? You've never answered that question, right? <laughs> and this is the problem with the sick care systems, and I'll get preachy. So, so it's the healthcare system to make us healthy, or is the healthcare system to treat our diseases, right? The healthcare system in the United States is to treat our diseases, right? That is why it exists. And so um, this, this is the importance of having the whole frame, right? So on the case of racism, one question to ask, what would help somebody have um, a thriving, vital life? And if we're not spending any time on that question, then we might miss something really important trying to get rid of all the toxins, right? You know, again, that's a little vague, a little 30,000 feet, but, but I do think we also have a healthcare system that has studied people who look just like me for a really long time, right? We make fantastic drugs for people who look like me. We didn't make drugs for anybody else, right? So, you know, like that's, a, so you'll never get to the place where we actually make treatments for everybody unless we think about everybody, right? And their, their needs, and their needs may come from their biology, their needs may come from the over, a larger culture. I mean, wherever their needs come from, they need to be respected and included. And I, so I think, how do you strike that balance? Because I, I, in our world, I mean, I work with a lot of toxicologists. They're very, you know, they're excited in a bad way about the train wreck, right? Because, you know, like, I can answer a question about a terrible gas, right? And so um, let's not fill the, the slate with all of the, all of the terrible, terrible, terrible things. Because we really aren't thinking about how do we resource health. I worry about children. I worry about seniors. And the little that we actually know about what they need. And, you know, but we're ready to catch them when they get their heart disease. And we're ready to catch them when they get their lung disease. And we're ready to catch them, right? But, you know, I'd rather not have any of those diseases. And we just really aren't spending enough time on that. So, I mean, we're pretty committed in our build-out to nutrition, physical activity, and sleep. Those three things are the only things that have been demonstrated to reduce all causes of mortality. That's it. There's nothing else that even comes close. And yet, the National Institutes of Health barely pays for any of that, right? So, you know, we have to shift the frame to value health and be intentional about it. We talked to our school district, like start times for schools is a health issue. It's not a busing convenience issue. It's a health issue for our kids. Super important one too, by the way, right? And so, to me, I, th I think you know we got to mix it up a little and, and sort of take people into a different place where we say, you know, we all value health, right? And we want to make sure everybody can be healthy. That was Dr. Ted Smith, director of the Center for Healthy Air, Water, and Soil at the U of L's Envirome Institute, and he was speaking on the monitoring of our wastewater for COVID-2 virus and other pathogens at the Louisville League of Women Voters Democracy in Action meeting, which was held February the 20th. This is Ruth Newman saying goodbye for now. <laughs>